Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me ready to solve the whodunit of movie discussions is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello. And to help us with this mystery is first-time guest, but long-time listener, Colby Mack from the Minorities Report podcast. What's up, man? Yo, 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 what up? It's your boy, Colby Mack, and I'm on the Feelin' Film podcast! <laughs> I wish every guest did that. That would be amazing. <laughs> you just set a new standard <laughs> that everybody is going to have to try and uphold. That was awesome. Well, this week we are talking about Knives Out, Ryan Johnson's mystery comedy, and it's got murder, maybe. It's got laughs, definitely, and we've got no time to waste. So here is your official spoiler alert. Go see the movie, come back, join the conversation, and have a good time with us. As always, we'll get started with our one-word takeaways, and as our now standard-setting guest, Colby, why don't you kick us off with your one-word takeaway? Gotcha! It's like... When you when you watch films in this genre, you're always trying to play like be a participant along with solving the mystery. And what I love about this film is that we're looking for the gotcha moments and we're see if we can be clever than our protagonists. But the coolest thing that Ryan Johnson does is that he really does subvert our expectations into the regular cliches of genre, and it doesn't fall victim to it at all. So the gotcha was like him saying it on us because we got completely served with something that I don't think anyone was expecting in the first act where I was like, oh, gotcha. We've got an hour and 10 minutes left. I have no idea where we're going to go. And it was just pure fun. And I love the intros of the family and, you know, the, the, the detective kind of machinations that are turning about and trying to understand it and. You think you kind of have an idea, then you do. And then there's something that, oh, I can see that's coming, but then it still turns on its head a little bit. And it's just full of gotcha moments and just full of fun. And I think I need to watch it again. Aaron, what about you? Well, my one word takeaway was exuberant. And that is because everything about this was incredibly lively and exciting and energetic. It just, from the get go, it really sucks you into that mystery. And for me, even when the intrigue faltered some towards the end of the film and in the middle (laughs) after the opening that is so good, the exaggerated and like the theatrical nature of the performances uh, by such an exceptional ensemble cast, really, I was constantly smiling, constantly laughing alongside this theater full of people who were all having a very similar reaction. And so the exuberance of the film created an atmosphere of the same in my theater. And I think that outside of Avengers Endgame being the event movie that it is, this was probably the biggest crowd pleaser of the year. And that kind of communal joy and fun in a movie is so rare. And maybe that's just because I see so many movies in a theater that it sticks out when it actually happens, but it makes it easily the thing that I will remember the most about Knives Out going far beyond what happened in the movie and the plot or any of the specificity of the story. It's just that experience and that feeling that seeing it gave me. 
Absolutely. Crafty was the word that I came away thinking about as I as I left the theater. And it really was influenced by what both of you are talking about. This idea that you watch a movie and you have expectations, but when it comes to how you feel leaving a movie, especially something like this mystery, I focused a lot on the craftiness in the way in which it was structured. It's in a lot of ways very much a standard murder mystery movie, but we don't get those a lot. But in a lot of ways, it's also very different. And I think the way that Ryan Johnson structures the story itself, how he sets up the overall, oh, that's what's going on moment, it feels different. And it's one of those things that I think is refreshing about this type of genre that we don't get a lot. I mean, we get movies with twists, but I feel like Christmas or December in general is the month where we're going to get mystery movies. I think last year it was... Murder on the Orient Express that came out came out this time about this time last year. This year it's Knives Out. So I'm expecting to have a good murder mystery happening each December to kick off the the holiday season. And Ryan Johnson really does set the bar. Uh, I won't say like really high, but he sets it to a level that I think more directors who tackle this genre need to look at as a standard. In a lot of ways, it reminded me in in small ways of Wes Anderson's movies. Very quirky, the overall settings, the color, the technical aspects of it stood out just as much as the actual plot, but the characters themselves being individualized and yet part of a whole ensemble working together really, really elevated this for me. I had a great time, as you both did, <laughs> I think after listening to Colby, I think I want to go see it again now too, but I want to go see it with you, Colby, because this is going to be, that would make it like probably 10 times more fun. It was so interesting seeing this, you know, obviously it was over the Thanksgiving holiday and I got the pleasure to see it at Disney Springs in AMC in, in their big theater. And it was great. And I was surprised how diverse the audience was. Like one, it was a full house. Every showing was full. Um, obviously Orlando is one of the busiest cities in the country. And I was surprised at like how many different types of people were at this movie. I mean, they were like old and young and really, really young. And I was like, I wonder if this is going to go over well because the tones of the trailers and I'm really big into how marketing impresses on me. I wasn't too sure what we were going to get. I was one of the few people that actually really enjoyed the murder on the Orient Express because I just love mysteries. And I wasn't, I think murder or express was based on a book, right? Oh yes. <laughs> and it's been so, made a couple times already. Yes. I don't read. I haven't read a book since high school. So I had no idea, no frame of reference going in. And I had no idea if this particular story of Knives Out was based on any source material. I don't believe it was. And obviously off of some of the overt, loud, toxic fandom of uh, Star Wars fans for The Last Jedi – there was a lot that was going to be placed on Ryan Johnson's shoulders, and I just love that he was able to put all that stuff away and just find a story with this amazing cast, like what you mentioned, and just like have fun. We don't sometimes films can get so heavy and be so weighed down by expectations, and I'm glad that this film really didn't have any, you know, other than just like the expectations if he's going to redeem himself from Star Wars. But we weren't going in looking for, you know, this canon that it need to live up to it was just an opportunity just to be able to have fun and that's exactly what this film exuded just pure fun and the prospect that there's going to be more stories with benoit blanc just gets me really excited 
you make a great point, Colby. And I think that as much as we give either props or criticism to directors, there's something to be said about being a great writer as well. And this was definitely, this was a movie written and directed by Ryan Johnson. So when you have that kind of marriage, when you have that kind of ownership of a story, I think there's a lot that goes into it. I was watching an interview on IMDb highlighting Ryan Johnson as a director, and it was really just a cheering section from the cast of Knives Out to him talking about how great it was to work with him. And I think it was Daniel Craig that said he doesn't hire actors that he has to teach how to act. He hires actors that he trusts to be able to tell his story. And that takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of great collaboration. And Knives Out clearly did this in a way where you have any number of these actors that are famous for different movies and different stories coming together and elevating the story for the sake of making the story great, not necessarily bringing about any individual person, which I think is what's tough in an ensemble. I mean, West Wing had that issue with Rob Lowe. It was originally going to center around him. When it became a story about the whole staff, the inner workings of the West Wing, it actually made it better. I don't know that I would have enjoyed a movie centered around one per- or excuse me, a TV show centered around one person. And Knives Out is successful in that, in the fact that not any one person stood out, at least not intentionally. And it all begins with a great story. And Ryan Johnson does this. He deconstructs that typical whodunit by telling us who committed the murder, like from the very beginning, from the first, what, 15 minutes, I think, if we could, if we could look at the timestamp. And then he works backward to unpack those circumstances that surround that and, and show the other characters trying to learn what the audience already knows. So we are actually playing the part of Benoit Blanc in some weird, not cool way <laughs> by understanding the inner workings and then trying to put the pieces together on really answering the question why. And I don't know that a lot of people would have gravitated towards a story like that because whodunits are really about keeping us all in the dark as their as their organic kind of heartbeat and i feel like that as an audience we became more engaged because of that where we focused less on trying to figure something out although that was still a part of it and more about the focus on these characters. Uh, Kobe, what did you think about this approach? It was really interesting and really kind of gutsy to play with the audience like that. But I, I really, I clap up directors that can do that and have the cachet to do it. You know, strong directors that are writers and directors that can really balance both of those jobs um, and do it to such a point where you really got to be in. You have to be really smart on how you craft this story because I think this opens up a lot of um, opportunities for plot holes to develop, and that can be the biggest way that you can just down like a bad mystery movie. And at the end of the film, because you've had so many other elements that worked well, even if there were some like plot holes, you just got so enraptured with like just really being like you know bowled over like wow you know what Ryan Johnson thanks man 
this is a great two plus hours that we spent together and just having fun. And I just let you just go. And I love giving permission to a movie to just work over on me. And it's, it, it, it felt really, really good. And I like it. I like that this wasn't another stale pick. And we had a film earlier this year, I mean, cleverly or not so much called Murder Mystery, which I happen to like, <laughs> with Adam Sandler. I enjoyed that Jennifer quite Anderson. a bit. Yes. It really – and it had a lot of those similar things. It had a really big cast, um, not as big of a cast I mean, in regards to their star power like this, but it was also fun. It leaned a little more into the comedy and maybe a little bit more absurdity than this film by a lot, uh, but it was played a little bit more – that film was – while this wasn't. So it was really refreshing to have. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot in the beginning. I, I will say that for me, and I kind of hinted at this in my one word takeaway, but when so much of this mystery took place at the very early point of the film, and we, we end up kind of deconstructing our way backwards to where we're trying to solve whether or not the family figures out what we think as the audience has already taken place. So as far as we know as an audience, it's a straightforward suicide. And the twist is that the character knows that it's a suicide. And now she's trying to hide it for the length of the film instead of she's trying to figure something out. It's just a really different take on the genre. And so I love that it's fresh and unique. But I will say that I personally, towards the end find it a little less engaging because I I guess I, I the twist that happens at the end of this movie was so complicated for me that it didn't hit me in the way that so many stories have the way of doing. So guys, I was, I saw this a, a month ago and I'm going to probably be less chatty on this than you guys are because it's been a month. And my problem with, the structure of Knives Out is that what I have learned is in the month that has passed, I don't remember the movie. And so I went and I was rereading a plot synopsis on Wikipedia of the structure of the film. And when I get to the ending, it has a paragraph that's literally the longest paragraph of the entire whole article to just describe all the little millions of things that happen in that last sequence with the um the um uh, blah, the the results the toxicology results and you know half of them being photocopied and it not being complete and then labels getting switched and there's just so much that goes into the intricacy of what took place that by that point I didn't feel like I was getting the whammy of a aha moment that I typically expect what I did feel is that I got that aha moment in the beginning and it got me really excited to follow Anna de Armas's character throughout the film. And so the other thing that he does that I found very interesting is that this is not really a movie that follows the detective. So Colby, you mentioned Murder on the Orient Express, right? Where we have Hercule Poirot, uh, the uh, Agatha Christie uh, awesome detective. And we follow that character. We follow Sherlock Holmes. We follow any other detective, Batman, like it's always their story. But Benoit almost feels like he is a secondary player in Marta's story in this one. And I really enjoyed that part of this film. And I think that that helped keep me engaged in a completely different way because it brought me out 
uh, more of an emotional connection to the character than it did me just trying to solve the mystery with the detective. There's a, a great point to be made here that when I walked away from watching this, I was definitely thinking about Clue in terms not only of the tone, but of the way in which all the characters work. Because, Aaron, you're right. This wasn't about Benoit Blanc, where when we think about Orient Express, it is about Pleurot. It's his story, not just about solving the mystery, but really about him grandstanding about how great of a detective he is. Because that's part of the point of the books, is to show how amazing he is. Sherlock Holmes is the same way. He has Watson alongside him to elevate how great of a detective he is. Knives Out isn't about Benoit Blanc. And it's not really even about Marta, although she is the she's the anchor that we follow and it centers around what she's done, but it's equally about elevating Benoit. It's about elevating this family and about really uncovering their motives that it makes it a different kind of mystery. And I think I'm just going to play psychologist here. There could be a reason why not just because you're a month removed that you don't remember much of it. It's probably because at least in part, it doesn't follow that historically similar murder mystery formula. We're trying to solve the mystery along with the detective, and we get that aha moment. I will say this. I agree, Aaron, that that last bit where we get everything, we get all the discovery, felt like I was listening to Aaron Sorkin writing a script because it was a lot of words. This movie had a (laughs) lot of talking in it, and rightly so. This is what you do when you solve a mystery. I'm going through watching old episodes of a TV show called The Practice that I, I watched back in the late 90s. It's a procedural, but it's all about what it's like to be in a courtroom. And all I'm hearing are objection and opening arguments and closing arguments. And it's all centered around really great dialogue with an occasional bloody body that's discovered that starts the whole case out. So I get it. And I get that what Ryan Johnson is doing here is giving us a lot of exposition and a lot of dialogue to keep us interested. That's risky. It's risky when it comes to that kind of stuff, because you may or may not want to sit through two hours of people talking. I mean, we watched jobs and it was really just one long conversation over the over the course of three scenes, but we love it. Why? Because it's Aaron Sorkin. And I think what Ryan Johnson does really well here is he gives us enough dialogue And he balances out with some really great set pieces when we go through and reconstruct what actually happened in a similar way to what we see in Clue. We get to follow along and experience these moments with these characters. We get to see what Marta saw. We get to see what, um, oh, uh, what's it? Harlan, not Harlan. Um, it was, uh, uh, Ransom, excuse me. Oh, yes. Great names. We get to see what <laughs> Ransom experienced and we get to put the pieces together, but it's all done through this dialogue, this monologue of Benoit Blanc. And it does kind of wear on you. You're like, all right, let's get to the, okay, did he do it? Did he do it? Because by the end of the conversation, you're like, okay, you've made your point, Benoit. And I, I think in a sense, that's what gives Benoit his flair because he's essentially with this fantastic southern accent by the way i did not expect that with with daniel craig it's so good i i miss this daniel craig like this daniel craig and it's very similar to the daniel craig we got in logan lucky i don't know if you've seen it patrick 
which you should. It's a heist film with Adam Driver as well, and you'd probably really dig it. But like this guy, this Daniel Craig man was like, I'm ready for you to be done with Bond. I love you as Bond, and I know that you are known as Bond now, but thank you, Lord, for that contract ending because I want <laughs> I want this unique Daniel Craig flavor in all of these different types of roles because, my gosh, he is just dripping with, you know, inc- I mean, he's just so, he's, you know, to use that euphemism or phrase or whatever, it's chewing up the scenery because he, but he is just, he's captivating. You can't take your eyes and your ears off of him. You just are like, man, I could listen to you and watch you do whatever you want on this screen for hours and never stop being entertained. He's so good. So how does he compare to these other great detectives that we've known throughout, I guess we could call it cinematic history. And obviously the other two that we've mentioned come from books, but for, for you guys, where does he stack up? I mean, obviously we love him in this, but could we, could we have more stories with him as the focal point or, is this kind of a one-and-done character that was good for two hours and then let us put that to bed? I really believe that the chemistry about and read about and what I saw on screen leads me to believe that there's a lot of stories to tell. Um, I find Benoit Blanc to be extremely interesting. The fact that we have this southern gentleman based out of upstate or middle New York – that contrast alone is going to be like so interesting to see how it plays out with other cases that he picks up. And, you know, I've been around about 33 years and I don't know of too many American born, you know, mystery figures that are really stuck, um, at least on screen. Um, I'm trying to think like when I, when I was a kid, detectives and there was a couple of those gumshoe Hardy boys, Nancy yeah, Drew, you know, but. In regards to like, you know, really the ones that have stuck as like icons on the big screen, not many. I mean, we got so many iterations of Sherlock Holmes and, you know, I, like I said, I wasn't really familiar with Murder on the Orient Express, you know, but just, I, 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 I'm really big into like trying to like, you know, pick up accents and just hearing the name, Hercule Poirot. I just, I love it. And the way he's been wall blanc and it's, it's so fun. And I, I'm hoping that maybe like, maybe Lakeith Stamp character can be inspired to want to work with him more because, you know, I would say, he, I don't want to say he was underwritten, but there just wasn't a whole lot there. I mean, definitely, you know, Daniel Craig's been while block was chewing everything up. Like you said, Pat, uh, but maybe he's like, you know what? I could have just chalked this up to being just a regular, everything is painting out the way it is to be a suicide. And I'm like, what does that do to a cop who thinks he's really good at his job? And this guy who's this world-renowned detective challenges him and like lets him know that, yeah, you were off your game. You missed this. Maybe this could be them. And that, that you know, Lakeith is a little bit more of the straight man while he's trying to keep up with him. And they add some, a little bit, you know, diversity to one another. I think it'd be a whole lot of fun. He's not there yet as to be like in the conversation, but I think it's a conversation that we need to continue to have. He needs to be. Um, and yes, let, now let's retire the 007 moniker and enjoy the next five to 10 years of, you know, the block universe. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Lakeith because I just watched Uncut Gems the other night and he's in that film, too. And what I'm starting to see is kind of a string of roles for Lakeith where he is very much a supporting character, but not even a full on supporting character with a lot of screen time. 
But Lakeith is awesome in everything he does. And so I too would have liked more Lakeith in this. And I think you're right. I think this sets up well for a buddy universe, a Sherlock and Watson, but they're not Sherlock and Watson. They're just two kind of different approaches to solving mysteries and police work that could work together in really, really intriguing ways. And I would love to see that as well. I don't personally, however, feel that Benoit Blanc as a character outside of his theatricality and the way that Craig plays him with regards to the accent, the way he talks. I don't find anything especially interesting about him. And that is why I wonder if that would work out well or not. I I would feel like there has to be something more than just he sounds cool, right? And I do think he sounds cool. By all means, I love the guy, and it was a blast. But Sherlock Holmes is known for this hyper personality that is very in touch with, like, absolute minuscule details. Hercule Poirot is sort of similar, um, has this – they both have very quirky, uh, um, almost introverted type of detailed – views on the world they can see things through eyes that maybe other people can't they can figure these clues out blanc is not like that blanc's power if it were is in his charisma i think and in his ability to talk things out of people without seeming like he's talking things out of people i I love that opening sequence where they're interviewing all the family members and he's sitting back there and people are like Who's that guy? <laughs> and he, yeah. He's doing the piano. He's doing the piano. Ding. Like, but like, I think listening and then, you know, literally just connecting with people is a way that he's able to solve his mystery. So it's a harder sell, I think, to build a universe around. I think that would be challenging. I'm here for it, but I think it would be challenging. I think that's one way that he very much so differs than those other characters. Yeah, I would agree. I think that what Ryan Johnson does really well is he gives us just enough of a detective that we know historically from these other murder mystery stories. He gives us a little bit of a Poirot. He gives us a little bit of a Holmes, but he relies on that charisma. And I think the accent, I mean, we keep going back to that. I think the accent, because it's so juxtaposed against what we know Daniel Craig as being because he's obviously not a Southern American helps elevate that charisma because we are getting used to that voice. We're getting used to the way in which he has that great Southern drawl. It reminded me a lot of the, the accents in midnight in the garden of good and evil, uh, particularly with Kevin Spacey. He has a fantastic Southern accent and it's very much that, that Georgia, Alabama, just real Southern, as opposed to just country, you know, when you're sitting back like this, you know, there's a difference. Kobe, you know this. We're from the South. There is a difference between being country and being Southern. And Benoit Blanc is very much a Southern gentleman. You know, he has that slow molasses kind of drip when he talks. And so when he does that, you, you're, you're smiling from ear to ear because you're going, just keep talking. I'm just going to sit here and listen to what you have to say because 
I don't really care what you're saying, but you're saying it so effectively that I'll believe anything you say. You could be reading me a menu from Applebee's and I'll probably believe that everything on there is delicious. And I think Ryan Johnson knows that there's an intentionality that comes from having a character with that accent and having somebody like Daniel Craig portray that character in a way that brings you in. And those little quirky things that he does, like tapping the piano key. This is why I need to go back and rewatch it, because I want to see when he taps that piano key. Is it significant or is he just being annoying? Or is Ryan Johnson just trying to give us clues that are really more just kind of like, um, what do you call them? Not ragamuffins. Um, I can't remember the word now. Uh, red herrings. Thank you. Let's say ragamuffins. I, I don't know, but I'd like to go back and see if there's something significant about that. I think that Ryan Johnson is being safe here. He knows enough about these types of characters that he writes them well enough. And I think if we got more of Benoit Blanc, I'd be very cautious in going into a story where he is the main character. He would need to be in a buddy movie with somebody like Lakeith Stanfield. Because to have a lot of him, I think, would get very grating to an audience. I think that there is a less is more approach with him, as there is with probably every character in this movie. But it reminds me a little bit of why I love Rowan Atkinson as Mr. Bean. He's great in short form. You give me a 10 to 12 minute sketch with him over the course of like a half an hour. I love it. But you give me two hours of Mr. Bean and I'm not loving it because there's something about that short form comedy that really, really works. Brian Johnson taps into that. He taps into the idea that give me just enough and then move on just enough and then move on. And it really, really is a strength of the movie when you have a cast like this that's able to chew up dialogue, deliver it in a way, and doing it without necessarily trying to make every scene something important. I think it's intentional that Ryan Johnson brings a cast like this together. And I tried to, because I do this, find what's the best performance. I really couldn't think of one. I couldn't see like what performance stands out to me. I'll tell you, one, one regrettable performance, and it's not because it was bad, it's just because I felt like it was somewhat wasted was having ransom in here as our guy, but not having a lot going on with him. I, I, you know, Chris Evans is another one of those guys who he's historically known. He's captain America. He's gotten this kind of stereotype potentially to see him in a bad guy role was a little bit difficult for me to get used to. I wanted more, but I guess I'm kind of glad I got what I did. I wish I could have gotten a little bit more of of him and his performance because he kept getting hinted at. I know for the sake of the story, but for for you guys, did anything stand out in terms of like individual performances? Did any of them fall flat? My standout, as much as I love Benoit Blanc, I'm just keep anytime I do his name, do it like that. Um, as much as I love him, this is very much Mark does movie. And we don't get these type of performances where Marta is not trying to unravel the mystery with us because she she knows that she's the one that did it. Um, it was unique that she's on a horror movie when everyone else is inside of this murder mystery. 
um, because the entire time she does not want to get found out. And she's got a lot of things at stake. You know, um, her place in this country puts her on edge. And, you know, the citizenship of her family is something that she values a lot. And she knows that if it were to come out that, you know, she, you know, had this role in this concocted suicide that was partly her fault, it could really compromise that. Um, so I found it interesting how much that she and Adarmas had to do with carrying this emotional weight and baggage throughout the film while at the same time trying to keep it enough together to be able to not, you know, read to Benoit that, oh, she's a part. But Benoit knew from the jump. There was this amazing scene where the audience is told that there's something that Martha doesn't know. And it's the drop of blood that was left on her white tennis shoes from – you know, from a uh, oh my god, I'm forgetting his name. You know, from <laughs> uh, from Christopher Plummer. I'm sorry, I, I can't remember the character's name. You know, from his blood splatter. And traditionally, in a whodunit, we are trying to connect. When is Benoit Blanc gonna figure out the blood? And there's a point where after they've you know kind of like looked at some stuff on the outside, and they came upstairs, recognized that there was this this faux door window, and he bends down. A- that's it. And that's typically where the audience will like jump in and say, ha ha, he's going to see the blood. And he doesn't do it at all. I found that to be so clever. And the fact that Marta is unaware of it the entire time. So I just thought everything that she did was really great. The character that I was kind of looking forward to that just really gave me nothing um, was the young man from uh, from it. Uh, I forget it. Jana Martel, right? Um, like on paper, He's supposed to be this kind of, you know, you know, uh, I guess this right wing, bright Bart, you know, and there wasn't enough there. Um, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that there was a in whatever edit of the film, there was probably a lot more. And he was just like, huh, I actually think both young actors in this film were just like we're just there taking up space. They definitely were not as like fleshed out uh, performance wise or script wise as some of the other characters. Yeah. I would agree wholeheartedly with Anadarmus being the key here. Of course, it's her movie, so that's not surprising. She's the one we see the most of. I mean, she's one of the very, very few female movie pop figures that I have, so I'm quite the fan. Uh, you know, ever since Blade Runner 2049, I actually went back and started to watch some of her previous films, and she is incredible. And it's no surprise that she's being recognized for the talent that she has. And I think that it is coming out here. She's starting to really show her range. I've seen her in a very dramatic film. I've now seen her in this, which is dramedy uh, for her part. You know, of course, Blade Runner 2049, which is a, a highly emotional, like, sci-fi. I mean, she's, she's playing an AI, for goodness sakes. She's about to be Marilyn Monroe. She's going to be the Bond girl for a no time in no time to die opposite this Daniel Craig I'm just desperately waiting to see that dynamic as compared to the Benoit Blanc and Marta Cabrera dynamic it's going to be very different and so that should be pretty fascinating but yeah like you said Colby I think it all hinges on the fact that like what she has at stake so everybody else in this room for all of their different political leanings and their posturing and their you know, relationship, inter-family issues between each other. They all want the money because they want money. Um, maybe the daughter, like, kind of wants it for a little bit of a sort of understandable reason so she can go to school. Um, but they all just want the money. Marta is trying to protect her mother and not get deported. And 
So this is where the film's, I think, big political messaging or I don't even say messaging, but commentary comes through. And it's interesting because I was reading an review or interview with uh, Ryan Johnson where he said that this is just surprise timing because he actually conceived of this plot and wrote this well before the country got thrown into our current immigrant debate with this build a wall or not um, type of issue that we're dealing with right now and, and the, the ice going all over and throwing people out of the country. And yet it becomes incredibly, incredibly relevant in the current um, state of affairs in the United States. And so, like you said, Colby, she is covering things up as opposed to trying to solve things. <laughs> and it, that's where that, that difference comes in. And I think because of that, she is easy to latch onto from an emotional standpoint. You really want to do that. For me, I will say that with regards to her character, I know Ryan Johnson was trying to bring some comedy and that's why we get her unique throwing up when she tells the truth. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that I don't like. And our listeners know this, like that's the kind of comedy that I just typically am like, come on like i'm rolling my eyes so you guys both giggled and i and that's fine like you're like normal people i'm the old fuddy-duddy in the room who's like oh, it's so dumb because i thought it was i was like this is stupid <laughs> like this is, nobody does this like you just unrealistic i'm like complaining about realism in a murder mystery that but, gag <laughs> that gag shouldn't work it should indeed <laughs> and it really it, it hinges on a lot like it is such a big plot device to what makes this film work, and I'm surprised that it did. And it seems that vomit is very popular in 2019. I've seen a lot of it on screen this year, um, so it is uh, interesting. And I did not didn't expect it at all. Yeah, I just watched Hustlers this afternoon. Same thing. <laughs> the, the, and, and I was reading up on that film afterwards before we recorded. And that character, that's a character didn't do that. That was completely added for the film. And she threw up anytime, like anything happens that like raises her anxiety. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but you know, the audience eats it up, which is, that's a disgusting way to put it. If you think about it. <laughs> but, um, the audience thinks it's hilarious. And I, you know, for the most part, like whatever. And I got to admit, the only time that I actually liked it is the payoff, right? The payoff in the end when she, has lied about um, the death of Fran and gets Ransom to confess and then has held it in and chunks on him. Even though that's disgusting, like the, you feel like that's, he's getting what he deserves. So it really pays off in that moment. But throughout the film, that kind of was like, eh, for me, the one that I liked a lot, the two performances I like, I'm going to just go through the whole list. I like them all, but Chris Evans did not work great for me. Um, I think that he can be a villain, but I thought that he was so over the top villainous that it was almost a mistake to make him the ultimate bad guy here. Because though I could never have predicted the paragraph long method in which everything actually plays out, the film always wants you, it, it always leads you to believe like it's going to be him. He's the one that is, and in most mystery films, maybe that's, also part of Johnson's subversion is, you know, the guy that you always think it is, I'm actually going to make that the guy, even though all the other mystery films don't make that the guy and play with it. But because of that, it just, I don't know, it wasn't that interesting with him being the bad guy. Um, and I think he could have done so much more than just be a spoiled 
rich brat. Like, I, I, Chris Evans can act so much more than the role that I think he had to play out here. Love Michael Shannon in his limited time. And then I think my favorite is just any time that Don Johnson and Tony Collette were on screen, or is it uh, Don Johnson and Jamie Lee Curtis? Are they the, they're the, are they married? They're brother and sister. It's Don Johnson and Tony Collette that were married, correct? I think no, it is. Don, Don Johnson and Jamie Lee Curtis were, were married. Okay. Right. So yeah, anytime, yeah, anytime yeah, that relationship, child, yeah. Anytime those two were like chirping at each other, that kind of banter between those actors, those, it was phenomenal. Like, I just, I loved it. I had so much fun with those characters. Um, but yeah, I think emotionally and thematically, like for me, it really all is down to Marta in that regard. For sure. And when you look at a movie like this, the murder mystery genre, I've seen historically that you usually sacrifice a slew of characters either through a crime or just through dialogue for the sake of elevating one or the other. Absolutely. This is Marta's story. And she's the, the one that we latch ourselves to because we're following her again, not trying to figure out what's going on, but as a means to change things up a bit, Ryan Johnson says, we'll follow her trying to keep quiet, try to lay low. I don't know that any of the characters felt wasted with the exception of Jaden Martell. I was reading on Reddit some of the some of the comments on the movie and somebody made a good point. They said, you know, for all the talk about him being this politically driven guy, this neo-Nazi, whatever it was that he was called, he didn't exhibit any of that. He was just on his phone the whole time. And either that was intentional by telling us that the internet is the place where you create these people, these alt-left, alt-right people, or it was just not fleshed out enough. I'd like to believe, because I believe in Ryan Johnson, that it was something that just wasn't fleshed out. I think that he was a scapegoat for a greater thing that was happening with regard to the political dialogue that was taking place. But again, I don't even know that he had a line of dialogue. I don't remember him actually talking. He just sat on the stairs. He was so quiet. <laughs> in the bathroom. And, you know, you could make those kinds of arguments, but it wasn't enough for me to be able to say he's really either a suspect or he doesn't add to the plot. I think that when you have him, when you have a couple of the other characters, I think it's, is it Meg uh, Thromby, the, the youngest? She brings a little bit to the movie in terms of some sympathy for Marta, but this is definitely a movie around adults. (laughs) This is, and I think more than anything, the movie, what it does for me is it just elevates what it's like to have a dysfunctional family. Um, I think in a lot of ways, this, this reminds me, a lot of things are reminding me of things tonight, but I think when I watch fighting with my family, it's that it's a similar dynamic where you have the things that you're used to as as a, as a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister that gets elevated for comedy. Aaron, you're right. Each one of these people just wanted money. They wanted control. And what Harlan was doing over the course of the story was saying, you don't get it and you don't get it and you don't get it and you don't get it. And it sets up what I think is probably, I won't call it a cheap way of giving people motive more so it was a way to say, look, everybody was mad. <laughs> and Brian Johnson says, let's see how that 
plays out in terms of them communicating with each other. More than anything, I think this movie elevates the fact that families just have a lot of problems when they're all driven by one thing and they can't get it. But I think it's different than other murder mystery movies because of the fact that we have at least some level of sympathy, more so for Marta than anybody else. But I look at somebody like Michael Shannon's character, Walt, and I'm thinking, man, what a terrible way to be told you've been wasting your life. (laughs) And to have that conversation with his dad saying, I shouldn't have done this. I should have cut you off earlier because I basically gave you these expectations that you couldn't live up to. The way in which we get the reveal for all these quote unquote motives to me gave me a level of sympathy for each one of these characters. They're all sinister in their own regard. But the fact is we don't really get that with other movies like this because the suspects are just that they're suspects And they're only given a kind of backstory if it serves the purpose of the detective, like Poirot or uh, somebody like Holmes, because the story center around them. I wanted to know from each of you, did that work for you or is it something that you saw or did you feel like these characters were flat only to serve the purpose of somebody like Marta and even Benoit Blanc to an extent? Only a couple for me. Um, First and foremost, before I was a critic, I was an actor. So I allow performances to really win me over in a film. And when you have Jamie Lee Curtis and Don Johnson and Michael Shannon and Tony and you have all these greats, they're just so colorful that even though that they were like caricatures, they still worked. Um, because ultimately this is fiction. This isn't real. Um, it's not going to be doing anything to me that depending upon certain genres is really going to like this, like this, this, the impact of this film isn't going to like change my life. So I just, I just, I, I'm invested in this world and I accept the characters the way that they are. Yeah. You know, I didn't have any issues with it either. I I thought, Maybe, if anything, it might be a little bit too much heavy on the eat the rich concept here, but because they're all rich. And so, you know, wealth is traditionally going to cause problems in narratives. And just like it does in real life, I mean, there's a reason that that's in the Bible as a very specific proverb of, you know, with, with, with money comes great responsibility. No, that's not in the Bible. Um, that's not even in a comic book. I'm mixing up my, th- look at that. That's just, it's Stanley in <laughs> Stanley verse five chap. No, anyway, uh, my point is that the love of money and the desire to have money and to be living your life in a way that either is dependent upon it or is in service of getting more of it, (laughs) then you're going to have issues when that goes away. Um, And I think all of these characters are shown to have experienced something like that. And if anybody is the least flat, I think you pointed it out, Patrick, it's Shannon's character, because he, to some extent, actually has a desire to do something great 
And it's not just about becoming as wealthy as his father. Like he wants to make a name for himself. He wants to be known for something. Now, ultimately, it's on the backbone of his dad and his dad's creative work. But he does have something of a desire that goes beyond just financial reasoning. And I think that you're you're right. I think that that is a little bit of a sad way for him to find out. That being said, I have to believe that from the way that this family has operated, he has missed signals over and over and over because we even see that kind of at the party, like a lot of missed signals. Yeah, absolutely. When we look at his character specifically, you can feel sorry for him, but at the same time, you can also make the, the assumption that he really hasn't had to do anything. And had the books not been there, he couldn't fight for getting movie rights to them. And Oftentimes, I've seen where someone takes a great idea and tries to elevate it by changing it, but it wouldn't have existed without the idea existing in the first place. I don't think Walt does it intentionally. I think he's opportunistic, but opportunistic without being able to do it on his own. He couldn't be an entrepreneur because he doesn't know how to network. He doesn't know how to find other avenues. If it were in his best interest to expand the company, he would, yes, try to find ways to bring other authors underneath that that publishing house and then make those successful because there is value in the name Thromby. And it's mentioned in the movie that it's a powerful publishing house, but when you only have one author, albeit a fantastic author who has tons and tons of books, you can't just rely on that one big fish, especially if you're trying to expand the company. So I think his intentions are good, but I don't think his methods or his execution really works. Can I also just say, because you just pointed that out, and again, I'm sorry that part of this conversation is like bringing back the plot points to me that I wasn't able to pick up on Remember On, uh, but you know, Christopher Plummer is phenomenal. And in everything he's in. And I think I actually like him being smaller roles these days because that condensed amount of him on screen is so powerful with every word that man speaks. But it was a really cool creative touch to make him a mystery writer. Normally that would feel cheap and goofy, but because He's using his knowledge and creativity as a writer to craft his own suicide. Like that, that is such a best part of what makes that opening so brilliant is watching him go through that process and knowing that he's written so many books doing these very unique twisted things. And now he's coming up with one that he's just going to enact himself and it's going to be in real life. It, it was a super neat way to structure that. And, you know, Colby, you said you like these movies, and I was going to point this out earlier. Have you seen Brick, uh, Ryan Johnson's, I believe it's his first feature film? Like, I think I was high school age, so okay. I couldn't appreciate it for, like, what it was. Watch it again. It is definitely Shakespearean mm -hmm. murder mystery with a, an awesome performance. Like, you like performance. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is really great in it. 
but it's like a high school movie too, which is something yeah. Patrick loves. It is so good. It's so good. And it's, it, it does hold up. I rewatched it recently. Um, and I was just going to point that out. Also, Patrick, to your point earlier, I wanted to mention about mystery movies coming out this time of year that the sequel to murder at the, of the Orient on the Orient Express, death of the death at the Nile, death, death, on, the Nile. The, death on the Nile, um, which is also another Agatha Christie novel. That movie is coming out next October right now. So it does look like we may get a nice little string and it could become a thing. Well, one more thing I wanted to talk about before we hit our connecting points is um, every murder mystery movie, even this one, has that aha moment. In some movies, it's like the oh crap moment. In some, it's like the I figured it out moment. Uh, I am going to confess, as I have before on this show, that I'm the guy who, one, doesn't like to figure out the twist ending. I like to be surprised, so I don't really put a lot of effort into figuring out what's going on. Two, I am historically not good at it when I try. So I just kind of relegate myself to being the the theater idiot that's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know it was ransom the whole time, even though it was probably in my face. Two questions for for you guys. Did you figure it out beforehand? Uh, it sounds like Aaron, yes, for your standpoint, since Ryan basically said, here it is. Um, and if so, how does that affect your enjoyment of, of movies like this? Maybe specifically this one, but figuring out a twist for uh, for movies like this, how does that affect your viewing experience? I think I'm the same as you. I get deeply invested in a good movie, and I'm just along for the ride where my initial intent is to try to figure it out along the way. But I just get so wrapped up and say, you know what? I didn't see this coming. In retrospect, now when I look at it, I'm like, oh, I should have totally seen that coming. <laughs> but I just didn't because uh, I really was – because so many things had to happen in a very particular order and sequence. And that's why sometimes in that third – when we get you know um, Blanc's kind of monologue, like, wow, that's a very convoluted way. Like so many things had to happen in place and so many quick decisions had to be made by both Marta – and uh, by ransom in order for their parts in this entire story to make any sense that I didn't think that it could happen that way. And I was just like, no way. Cause he had like a very, like he, it, it's weird because I think the internship that he said that he had with his granddad must've really paid off because after they had this argument, I don't think that he went in that night thinking, planning this out for months. No, he went in that night and made a very emotional decision and just know, oh, it's almost it's almost medicine time. And, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do this and, and do that. So I didn't think it was a play out, especially when we got the chase. I had no idea. When the chase happened, I'm just like, what is – where is this movie going? I've got no clue. They've both been – I don't get – oh, wait. He's getting arrested? Wait, what? So, yeah, I'm that guy too. Um, but it, it makes it fun. Um, for me, I'm very good at compartmentalization. So I don't think if I do end up finding out the aha moment ahead of time, it'll ruin it for me. But I can see how that could ruin it for some other folks, um, that lack of engagement. Because if you already you know, kind of found it out, it may not hit some people the same way. I would say I lean towards being the guy who wants the aha moment to hit. And – I definitely think that it was a clever creation of the way that this film's finale plays out. I mean, I, I would have never in a million years expected all of that stuff to happen, but that's part of, like I said, what was a little bit of a tractor for me as well, because there was so much to it. And 
I love the emotional aspect. The gotcha moment for me that I did hit was Marta realizing that she is such an inherently good nurse that her fingers knew which was the correct bottle and which was not. And that's a very real thing. And I thought that that was really touching and just getting to witness her go through the mental process, knowing that she did not make a mistake and being able to kind of forgive herself for that, I think was important to me. So that was more of the aha gotcha in a sense that I liked uh, because it was moving, but um, I do need more of the, I don't know. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it, but I like it when it's, when it surprises me murder on the Orient express. I had not read the book. I had not seen the previous films, even though I knew of its existence. And so I was surprised by the end and the reveal. And that was a really, really cool moment for me. Now I don't need to know on future rewatches. I can rewatch a murder mystery movie, knowing how it plays out and get a lot of enjoyment from it. And I think that, I'm hoping that that's going to happen with Knives Out for me because I do want to see it again. And I would like to see if I'm going to enjoy it more knowing what's going to ultimately have it and not have to be worried about having that moment at the end, if that makes sense. So it's better for me on a second viewing, knowing what's going on. But on that first one, yes, Patrick, I do like to be completely and utterly shocked in a zing, really quick, tight moment. Johnson does something that... I think he's very aware of his audience in terms of that aha moment. You mentioned, Aaron, something that I gravitated towards, which is Marta's discovery, or excuse me, not her discovery, but uh, Blanc's discovery that she was able to know which bottle was the correct one based on the weight. Small moments like that were the aha moments for me. I didn't really get the wow moment with with ransom and i think it's because i didn't connect with him as a character maybe it was because as you mentioned earlier he was the guy that we expected and because we expected it it was sort of the twisted way of johnson saying yep that's the guy more than anything i think what johnson does here in knives out is he lets us enjoy the journey equally as much as the destination and part of that i believe is because he knows that we're an audience that is all about trying to be our own Benoit Blanc. We want to know who done it. When you give us a murder mystery, it's inherent that as an audience, we're going to be on the trail with the detective trying to figure out what the, you know, who the bad guy is, who's the one that committed the murder, who's the one that committed the crime. And he knows that. And I think what he does is he says, look, I'll go ahead and tell you. And in the meantime, I'm going to let you enjoy everything else about this movie. And that's where I want to give a, a couple of pieces of uh, a couple of props to the the film editing by uh, Bob Dusque. I think is his last name. Fantastic film editing. And then the production design by David Crank. This is a movie that isn't just about the cast. It's about the scenery. It's about the house. I think one character at one point said that it's a it's a house. It's just like Clue. <laughs> or they make a they make some reference to clue and it's so true it's not just about mystery passages but it's about the way in which the scenes are used to elevate the the tone of the movie the house itself is just ridiculous i mean it's definitely a house that's lived in by 
a writer because there are books everywhere, but there are nooks and crannies. This is a house that I want to live in for maybe a summer, maybe not my whole life because it would kind of creep me out. It's a house that could be part uh, horror movie, part comedy, part all these things. I loved being introduced to the game Go, which I have recently, apart from this movie, wanted to learn how to play. Um, I love seeing it in the movie. And I, I hope that we get more movies appropriately that incorporate it in some way, shape or form. A Beautiful Mind is one of those good ones. But I think that there's so much about the technical side of the movie that helps make it that much greater than just a, a whodunit. It really makes it a movie that you love watching, that you love experiencing. Colby, you mentioned just being able to be immersed in this, to suspend your disbelief. There's a lot about this movie that should not be uh, realistic, particularly when you have a gag reflex from from lying. This should not be something that happens to a normal person, but it is normal in a movie like this because everything else is elevated to a place of almost absurdity, but not quite. And I, I like that Ryan Johnson doesn't take us to that complete like ridiculousness in most of the narrative. So props to the technical folks that were the backbone to this. I think Johnson would probably agree with me because, you know, he and I are close and, you know, we've, we've talked about this, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's fantastic. Well, now we get to the point where we talk about our connecting points and Kobe, why don't we start with you? I absolutely love it as a working screenwriter as well. I'm a man who wears many hats. Um, I love it when a storyteller can add a little bit of additional dimensionality to their characters and they do something outside of what they're proposed to do in regards to like what they serve in the story. So we've got Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, and he is a great detective of, you know, of great renown, right? And we'd expect that every time that we see him, it's going to be in search of the truth, trying to piece together something else. I just love it when a character does something that we completely don't expect. And it's something that's very human, just very ordinary. And at some point when, Marta is trying to figure out the mystery and trying to keep it away from Benoit Blanc. He's sitting inside of a car outside of a, I guess, like a dry cleaner or a coffee shop. And he's just listening to like an iPod or something. I can't even remember what he was listening to. But it's like that simple little moment that in all this chaos that Marta's character is dealing with, he just takes the time because, you know, he's just he at this point, he's not the detective. He's the guy waiting in the car. And I eat those moments up and I connect to it in such a real way because I love for characters to be more than just surface level. And that just gives me a little bit more about who he is. And I want to know, you know, what else does he just do? Like think about like the films that like have this great weight to it. One of the most memorable parts of like one of my favorite films of the decade um, was uh, uh, the Avengers, right? Was the shawarma scene. And think. Think about how good it was just to see these people that we've seen just literally stop a intergalactic, you know, you know, catastrophe and just sit down and just get shawarma. No dialogue. They're just chewing like we do. And I just love it. And I, I, I connect to it so hard. That's really good. <laughs> that is a really good, perfect example of a connecting point. And I am so glad that you got to have that. And I'm glad that you brought the shawarma scene, too, because that's awesome use of like after the film moments that that Marvel has been hit or miss on, of course, but that is a clear example of one of the best ones we've ever had. 
So good. Well, Patrick, I hate to say this, but I don't have one. And I don't think I had one when I came out of the film either. There just wasn't any one particular thing that I felt supremely moved by. Um, outside of maybe what I mentioned earlier with Marta and the discovery of the different textured um, vials of medicine and realizing and being able to kind of forgive herself. But uh, yeah, no, no real connecting point for me. Yeah, I'm the same way, Aaron. I didn't have one either. And it wasn't a detriment to the movie itself. I think it, on, the, on the show, we talk about how every movie makes us feel something. And this definitely made me feel a lot of things. I look at a, a cast like this and how you have an ensemble driven movie. There's not one moment that really just said, oh, my gosh. And I almost think that's a credit to Ryan Johnson in the fact that he gives us moments that we value, but not necessarily some that are like, you know what? If everybody else was like this character, it would be a lot better. No, everything felt purposeful, eh, with the exception of the couple of kids that were in there that we talked about earlier. So no connecting point for me either. Well, that about does it for this episode of Feelin' Film, wrapping us up. Colby, man, this was great. We've got to have you back on the show. This was a blast. This was super fun, guys. Um, like you said at the top, I've been a big, big fan. And I can remember like the first time I reached out to you guys when I even like knew what this podcast was. I said, it's so cool to have something that's different because I listen to way too many pods, currently 53 and counting every week. And it... Thank God for 1.5 speed. Um, it's just refreshing to kind of have a different way to approach like film discussion. And, you know, like this is one of the first reviews that I've done as a guest where it's like, oh, yeah, we didn't really talk about cinematography or we didn't really talk about the score. Cause I'm like, yeah, there's other things though. And like, this is so cool because I feel like that this podcast just does a great job at trying to find another way to connect. And it's, it's really, really great. And I'm very, very proud to be on and very, very thankful. And I look forward to coming back if you guys will have me. Well, speaking of connection, where can people connect with you uh, out there on the interwebs? Hey, you can find your boy. I'm on all the socials at Kobe told me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Facebook. If you're still into that sort of thing at Kobe Mac, you can catch all of my written content at Kobe And I've got the Kobe told me podcast and the minority support film podcast. Fantastic. Well, next week, Aaron and I are going to return to chat about the Netflix original feature Marriage Story, topping the best of his list uh, for 2019. You'll want to tune in for that. I'm definitely I don't know if I'm saying looking forward to it, but this will be it. This will be I'm a, not. <laughs> I know it was my idea, but I'm yeah. not <laughs> right into the tree, right into the water. Um December donor pick voting is happening now through the 10th of December. And our theme is, quote, Maybe it's a Christmas movie and maybe it isn't, unquote. The choices are Die Hard, Trading Places, Batman Returns, The Apartment, and Lethal Weapon. You can support us for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash film. And with that dollar, you can help us choose which one gets covered this month or donate a little more and get some sweet rewards. Aaron Colby, thank you guys for a fantastic conversation and we will talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.